Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to the Bitcoin Stoa. Eddie and I are stoked to bring you School of Coin, episode three of 21 today. And we're going to do our best to answer the question, what is money? And it's a hefty concept to unpack and a very important one to understand. And so we have lots of stuff to cover, and we hope this serves as a useful episode for you to improve your understanding of money. Uh, the Bitcoin Stoa is a community-funded platform. So if you enjoy listening, you can support the project in two ways. Uh, one, by sending some stats to the QR code on the homepage at bitcoinstoa.com. And uh, a new way, number two, we're now officially listed within the podcast index, and you can officially stream sats to us using something like the Breeze app, which has a podcast feature and is super cool. It's like literally magic internet money. It's pretty dope. Um, so with that said, let's dive in. And I think a good place to start is by mentioning that Bitcoin is a new form of money. And so before working to understand Bitcoin, it's really important to first understand money. And when you understand money from first principles, you're then able to make a judgment as to what is good money and what is bad money and can choose which form of money you wish to store and protect your wealth in. And so instead of listening to us tell you why Bitcoin is good money, we want to dive deeper and talk about what actually objectively makes money good or bad. Um, and by understanding money, you don't need to trust anyone that tells you something is good money or bad money. You can kind of know for yourself. And I think that's very important. Um, and understanding it from first principles gives you back the power to decide what's good or bad money. And I think people, I think most people don't understand that there's objective ways of measuring how, how well a good serves as money based on properties, um, and how well or poorly it solves the problem of trade. So I want to kick this off with a Henry Ford quote. This is from 1922. So this is not a new quote, but I think it's very powerful and holds true maybe more today than in 1922. Um, and he said, it's well enough that people do not understand our banking and monetary system. For if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. And that's a really powerful quote. And, you know, it kind of shows that once you know how fiat works, you become a monetary activist. Uh, and, and to be quite frank with me, I lost a lot of trust in the government when I understand how this worked and you essentially realize that they're constantly stealing from all of us, uh, and squeezing you to work harder and harder for less and less, um, so they can benefit. And it's pretty messed up. And, you know, even just before we talk about financial ignorance, what are your thoughts on that quote? What, what comes to mind when you hear that? <laughs> yeah, I'd never heard that quote before, Nick. Um, I think that is a, it's a pretty spot on quote. And I'll just speak from my personal experience, um, having a revolution uh, overnight. Uh, it's definitely possible. And one of the things that, that comes to my mind uh, is that, you know, when I first started to understand Bitcoin, my, my biggest hurdle was to understand why it was so valuable. And so my next question to understand why there was put any value into Bitcoin is to understand what is money and why is Bitcoin worth so much money? And so, you know, going down that rabbit hole is uh, a journey that everybody needs to take. And I think that in society, we're not taught about money, but I think that in short, it can be done very quickly. And by presenting the basic facts and foundational values, of what money is, I think that everybody listening including myself, can easily understand uh, what money is and to start to make their own 
opinions on, uh, uh, you know, guiding, guiding themselves through, um, you know, today's world. But I think that's a really good quote. And I think that, you know, everybody has the ability to understand money. And uh, when I started to learn about it, it seems a little bit overwhelming, but uh, just, uh, just like that quote said, um, it can be done very quickly and a lot faster than, than you may imagine. <laughs> yeah. And it's not as, I mean, something like money can be as complex or as simple as you choose it to be. And I think choosing for it to start, to just start simple, right? Like start at the grade 11 level. Um, and, you know, I think the first topic I want to talk about was financial ignorance. You know, this notion that the foundational problem uh, with our broken financial system is really financial ignorance. And, you know, I define ignorance as being uh, a lack of knowledge or information on a particular subject. And I always found it really weird how so few people understand something that affects us firsthand on a daily basis. Uh, it affects all of our relationships. It affects most of our decisions that we make in life of how we want to spend our time. Um, and that's money. And, you know, like you said, we, we receive zero financial education in school, which is really silly. Um, and basically it allows us to take money for granted, uh, and use it every day without having any foundational understanding of how it works. And I think that puts us in a position where we're easily tricked. And, um, you know, like we also receive zero meaningful health education in school and health and money are, I don't know if there's anything more important than health and financial uh, understanding when in terms of like living a productive adult life. And so two of the most important things in life aren't taught, aren't talked about. And so it's no wonder that we're uh, lost when it comes to health and money. And I think confronting our financial ignorance is step one. And it's really uncomfortable, I think, for people to admit um, how little they know about money. And it's even more uncomfortable when you start to dive in and learn about, uh, about money and realize how much we've been fooled and kind of taken advantage of. Um, and, you know, you start asking questions like, how does the banking system work? How does the stock market work? What is fiat money? Um, how much money is actively being created? Who decides that? Uh, what are the consequences of money being created? These are all really important elements towards understanding. And so, um, you know, what was it like for you when you first started that process of confronting sort of, uh, you know, the, the financial ignorance, for lack of a better word, um, and how, you know, how long did it take for you to get a grasp of, of money to the point where it was like, okay, I'm, I'm comfortable now that I have a, a better understanding. I'm not in the dark anymore. Yeah. Um, and was there a moment that, that cued that? That was, that was another thing. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll go backwards. Um, the moment that cued my, my, um, importance to learn about money was, um, learning about Bitcoin and I can, um, you know, I can tie back a lot of different rabbit holes to Bitcoin, um, in my life, including health, but, um, keeping it more focused around money and learning about money. Uh, when I became, became infatuated with Bitcoin, I started to realize how little I knew and how much trust I had placed on the ongoing, you know, the, the current system, you know, what I had walked into, um, you know, uh, eight, eight, eight years ago when I, um, graduated college and, and started, uh, 
uh, you know, working, working in a career, you, you know, you start making money and you start doing all these adult things and trying to save. And, uh, you know, some people do it really well, but a lot of us um, struggle. And um, I personally um, didn't make a ton of great decisions um, early on. And, uh, you know, thankfully, I've been able to learn from those. But my point is, is when you start learning about money, you're going to be faced, I was faced with a lot of emotions and things that I was unaware of, you know, like these subconscious things that are going on in the back of your head. Um, and so I was constantly faced with changing my perspective, um, realizing that, okay, I, I, you know, I, I thought I knew where money came from and I thought that I knew what the U S dollar was, but I actually had no idea what, what it was. And uh, so I think that was like my first hurdle is really kind of working through like, you know, telling myself uh, being okay with not knowing um, and, and working through those initial emotions. I mean, you know, anything uh, dealing with money is typically going to have a quite a strong emotion to it um, naturally, you know, in a human. And um, so, you know, working through those emotions and then also, what kind of emotions what kind of emotions were you getting when you worked through it yeah um that's good i mean i would feel you know moments of like anger you know because you you feel a little bit uh like there's no control you know there, this is some massive uh machine that's just going and and you know maybe it, i i'm sure everybody's heard these like um you know, this analogy, like you're, you know, you're uh, a cog in a big machine. And uh, so, yeah, you know, you feel like you're a little bit out of control. You're like, what can I do to actually make my life better when, when this system is made to, you know, sustain itself? Um, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit of self-pity, you know, and, and uh, looking back and saying, oh, well, I could have done, I could have done this, I could have done that, you know, I and mean, really, you got to work through those, you got to push through those things. And, and then once you can, once you can kind of face, you know, those, those, those emotions, those, that anger, that, that um, pity, you know, maybe a little bit of sorrow um, or confusion, then you can kind of really start to ask yourself some, some basic questions, but, you know, also another really great point that you mentioned, Nick is, is uh, I guess it's like frustration with, uh, with the education system and, and things like that. I mean, um, I definitely took economics in high school, but like what little did I retain, you know, um, from that. And, uh, you know, even um, being a quote unquote adult and having, you know, uh, a, a you know, great jobs and, and making good money, I still didn't know anything about money. And, um, you know, I wonder, I wonder how many other people are there um, like me who, uh, you know, just kind of go through their life and, uh, and, and, uh, continue to, you know, work hard and, and, and not really think about those core concepts, um, because money is a, is a core concept. And when I started to learn about it, I re I realized that, um, it's an essential part of society and, um, it's something that is, is created by society. Um, and so then, you know, you, I started asking myself, well, you know, why is it something that's centrally controlled? you know, and, and, uh, and things like that. But, um, I don't know, Nick, I, I think those are kind of the first emotions that I was working through and, and, you know, you, you feel frustrated because, uh, we're, we're in a, uh, you know, we, we, 
we live in the you know western states and and uh you know you, you think that you think very highly of of the country that you live in and you know you're very happy about that but um there's a lot of things that are um you know out of our control and and uh, so i think to gain control of that we need to to understand it as an individual and kind of like you said earlier take take full responsibility of of your finances and, and because that's a, it's a very core aspect of, of life. Yeah. That was really well said. Thanks for sharing that. And I think, yeah, it is really, uh, uncomfortable when you realize how little, you know, uh, it's even more uncomfortable when you realize all the things that you didn't know that are actually, uh, sort of contributing to a lot of the problems we have in, in even our individual struggles with money. And so maybe a good pl- place to go next is sort of why does money exist? right? Like what, what is money? Why is it, why does it exist? And, you know, money's a tool that humans invented um, and all tools solve a problem. That's why they're created and that's why they continue to be used. And so uh, money exists to solve the fundamental problem of trade. Uh, It's an intermediary good that allows us to exchange products and services with one another by providing sort of this common language of value. And, you know, it, it's an important tool because it's a tool that permits large scale cooperation at a societal level, right? Like you have a specific skill set. I have a specific skill set. They're different. We can give each other value, but we need something to bridge the gap of how do I give you value? If there's no intermediary good, then we're back at the barter system. And that's a, there's a fundamental problem with that, which is, I believe, called the coincidence of wants. Uh, where if I have something and you don't want it, we no longer have the ability to barter. So money is this intermediary good. It fundamentally is a tool that solves the problem of trade. Trade is a good thing because it's mutually beneficial for us to be able to exchange value for each other's skill sets. Um, and coordination through trade is what allows us to build societies that are much larger and complex than what's possible without money. And you know, I think within a personal context, money is a tool that allows us to store our time and energy, right? We give our time and energy to others. They thank us by giving us a unit of value, which, which, which we can then use to purchase goods and services in future, right? We don't want money. We don't own money because we want money. We own it because of what it can purchase us in future. And so money is effectively like an option, an open option to acquire what you want in future. And you know, but it needs to be able to store energy efficiently over time for future use. And so money is kind of like title to human time or tokenized energy as Sailor put it recently. And it's our base layer language in society that we use to communicate value. So, you know, if that, if that tool is corrupt um, and people don't understand how the tool works, so it's easy to propagate corruption without people objecting, then fundamentally society will be corrupt because that base layer language is essentially the source code that we plug into how we build societies. Um, and so let's talk about some principles of money. So the, the order that we'll go through this, and this is a meaty episode. And so it's going to be, you know, hopefully people are that come to this are at a point where they're interested. through it in this order, principles of money, functions of money, properties of money. And then we'll finish with a couple of things that kind of talk about, you know, hard versus soft money and why sound money is important. So let's start with some principles. And these are really big general things. And I should say that the biggest person I've learned from when it comes to money uh, from first principles is Parker Lewis. He's like, he's just an OG, super savant genius when it comes to talking about money and breaking it down and really understanding it. So I encourage everyone to go and check out his stuff. He's got blogs at Unchained Capital. He's got a bunch of podcasts. 
Um, let's talk about principles of money. So do you want to lead off with sort of uh, one of the principles that you had written down and we'll just yeah. kind of go back and forth? Yeah, definitely. Um, the first principle that I wrote down is that, uh, and I do, I, I just a quick point. I love listening to Parker Lewis. And uh, one thing that I'm going to pull is, uh, is another guy that I love listening to about money and that's Robert Breedlove. Yes. Um, yes so my first principle is that money is required for functional coordination of society. And that just kind of real quick brings me back to our last episode where we talked about culture. And I think that it's, you know, it just ties that together because money is required for functional coordination of society and human exchange. So the exchange between humans is essential to cultural evolution. And that's just a direct quote from Robert Breedlove that um, I pulled off of his um, money, Bitcoin and time uh, article, but uh, that's the first principle. Uh, money is required for functional coordination of society, and it's essential um, for, for the evolution of society. Yeah, that's a really good principle. Just knowing that money is important, right? Like in order for us to want to direct attention towards understanding something, we first have to understand that it's important. Um, and that, that's a really good principle. Um, the first one I had written down is that money monopolizes or that money trends towards a single medium over time. And I think this is an important one because, you know, as humans, if you want to have access to trading with the most people, uh, you naturally converge to the network that has the most people on it, right? And the, my favorite analogy with this is the internet. The reason we have one internet and not many internets is because having one information network, you know, if the internet is an information network and an information protocol, then Bitcoin is a monetary uh, network or a monetary protocol. And I, I find there's a lot of similarities between those two. But the reason we don't have many internets and there's only one is that we all want to be able to communicate together. And so, you know, right now we currently have multiple monetary networks. Um, you know, the US dollar is a monetary network. The Canadian dollar is a monetary network. PayPal is a monetary network. ACH, Square, Western Union. These are all separate monetary networks, which don't speak to each other. Um, but now they're converging on a single global open monetary network that's accessible to everyone, wraps around the entire globe and has no barriers to entry. And that's Bitcoin. And so I think this whole notion that money monopolizes and we converge to a single medium over time, which is the form of money that best serves us all is the most fair is, you know, like we're all deciding actively we're doing an A-B test. Every time we decide what money we're using, we're, if we have an understanding of money, we're essentially deciding, well, I want to use the best money that I have available to me. And we haven't actually had choice for a long time. Now we do. Therefore, if we understand what good money is from first principles, and we'll get into that with properties, and we trust that humans are intelligent creatures that increase their understanding and make wise choices for themselves over time, then we can, it's not really a, a, a big uh, stretch to say that well, the world's going to converge on Bitcoin because we converge to a single medium and a single network and Bitcoin is the best form of money. And so that principle really like, that's my anchor where it's like, this is important to work on because Bitcoin is that single, um, you know, it, if money monopolizes towards the best form of money and Bitcoin is that from first principles, and we can measure that objectively, then clearly Bitcoin is going to be important. And so when you're stacking sats and you know that principle, you can feel good. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, um, I think that was pretty spot on, Nick. I mean, you know, 
I, I don't really have any other like thoughts besides that. I, I think that, you know, like while we're talking about this, I am constantly, <laughs> my mind is constantly going to a million different places. And, and that just like goes to show that um, money is something, you know, even, even right now recording this episode it, that it like touches every aspect of your life. Yeah. And, um, and so I appreciate being able to break down these, these principles like that. Um, you know, uh, if, if you don't mind, I'd love to, to read off the next principle and then probably ping off a couple of your thoughts if you're curious. Yep, um, definitely. But uh, the, the last principle that I had wrote down was the value of any good trends towards its marginal costs of production over time. And I will say that I probably couldn't regurgitate that in my own words. I, I, I could think about it, but could you kind of explain that um, to, to me and, and probably other listeners, Nick? Yeah, that's a, that's a super powerful principle, uh, Eddie. And I think that, you know, once again, the value of any good trends towards its marginal cost of production over time. And, you know, behind that, you need to know that each Bitcoin costs energy to produce. Um, because of the su supply schedule, um, based on the supply schedule, not only does it cost energy to produce, but the amount of energy needed to create one Bitcoin increases over time. So it's important to note that Bitcoin costs energy to produce. Fiat dollars cost nothing to produce, cost nothing to create, right? You can literally create trillions of dollars um, by pressing a button. And that's how the Fed generates that. And so if you look at the fact that the value of any good trends towards its marginal cost production over time, Bitcoin costs energy, which is like a universal language of um, form of value and fiat costs nothing, then over time, Bitcoin trends towards whatever the cost is to produce it. And fiat trends towards whatever cost the cost is to produce it. And if fiat's cost to production is zero, it will trend towards zero in relative purchasing power. And so, you know, an easy way to look at this is like, okay, you create a shirt, uh, you make a shirt and you make the shirt for $5 and you sell it for $50. Um, eventually the cost of a shirt, like if I see that and I say, wow, Eddie's making the shirt for $5, selling it for 50. Well, I'm going to, I might only be able to make the shirt for $10, but I'm going to sell it for 40. And so the value starts to trend towards what it costs to produce. And I think that's a really important principle and it's super relevant when you're comparing Bitcoin and fiat. Um, and I don't know if there's much more unpacking that needs to be done there. Just knowing that this principle applies to any good and money is a, is, is a special good because it's an economic good that we use to store value and use to purchase other things, but it is a good just like any other. So it is not, uh, it won't, it cannot be excluded from this principle. And just knowing that, I mean, the essence of that is your money ends up being worth what it costs to produce. And we've never really had a form of money that dialed in this notion that, okay, you have to work to earn your money, right? Your marginal cost to produce money is the time and energy you give and the value you ascribe to that when you're offering a service. So if you have to work and put your time and energy uh, into making money, why can someone just create money out of nowhere without putting any work into it? And that, it, fundamentally, that's unfair, Right. And that's not a problem with Bitcoin, because if you're a miner and you want to create Bitcoin and be paid Bitcoin, um, then you have to expend a huge amount of computing power, which costs you energy. And so there's no free lunch, right? You can't get something for nothing. And I think 
those are like the laws of nature. Um, and yeah, that's a really good principle. And the only, the, the two other ones that I think were important to mention under principles is that there is an adoption order and we're going to go over the function uh, of money next, the functions of money, but you know, the three, the, the three primary functions we usually talk about, and we'll unpack them in a sec is store of value, medium of exchange and unit of account. But I think the principle that I want to mention is that there is uh, an adoption order that must, that, that those need to be adopted in. So money serves those three functions. And I'm going to add a fourth one that I heard from, An from Antonopoulos, which I think is a good one to mention. But there is an adoption order where first it must be adopted as a store of value. Then it can be a medium of exchange. Then eventually it becomes a unit of account. You can't do it in the opposite order. And so right now, Bitcoin is really more or less a store of value. It's not really being used to transact with because people first need to acquire this thing and know that it's sound money. Then eventually, when the infrastructure is built and people are willing to part ways with their Bitcoin, um, then it becomes used as a medium of exchange. So there is a, an adoption order um, where I go store of, store of value, medium of exchange, unit of account. I think it's important to know that. And then the last one that I really like is, is Thier's Law, which is that good money drives out bad money whenever bad money becomes worthless. And if we just talked about how the trend of any good uh, or the, the value of any good trends towards its marginal cost of production, the marginal cost of production to make fiat money is zero, then the good money, which is based on a cost to produce, which is energy, which is Bitcoin, uh, will drive out the bad money, which costs nothing to produce and ends up being worthless. And so I think these principles really kind of reinforce the fact that, okay, there's a reason Bitcoin's getting more expensive. There's a reason so many people are adopting Bitcoin. It's not just because they want to get in on the latest trend. It's because more and more people are, are starting to understand how money works and starting to see that now they have a choice and the wise choice is to select the better form of money. Um, so yeah, those are kind of the principles that I think are good to start off with these overarching general things. Let's talk about functions of money. Um, and we talked about the sequence of adoption, but the first step, the first function of money is store of value, something that retains its purchasing power over time. When someone says store of value, what does that make you? Where does your brain go? I think of like a, like a vault, like a gold vault. Okay. Yeah. Something that is, uh, yeah. And I think gold was a, uh, was a very good store of value traditionally right? Um, because it retained its purchasing power over time. It was, you know, and we'll, when we get into the properties, I think it's important to mention gold because gold had a lot of good properties that made it good money. Um, but it also had some drawbacks and limitations that we essentially, yeah. that, that Satoshi learned from and improved on. And it, the, he ditched the limitations and just kept the best uh, elements, the best property. I think too, like another thing that, that comes to my mind when I think of store of value is like, <clears throat> If I have something nice, um, whatever that may be, or or whatever it is, I want I want to keep it um, for a long time. And uh, so, you know, when I think of store of value, I think of something that I can keep for a long time. Um, you know, I, I guess you know it, you think of castles and bank vaults and and things like that because that's uh, what we know and that's like what um, human society has created. You know, to to safeguard things of value. Um, but that is like very quickly changing uh, in today's landscape. Um, what are your thoughts on on store of value, Nick? Yeah, I think you know money functioning as a store of value is very essential, and you can almost liken it to energy, right? If I have a I have this battery pack and I charge it up and it's at full charge, I know that over time it will lose energy because it's it's leaky, right? It's not a perfectly stable store of energy, 
and that it has to be trickle charged to be, uh, to be maintained at a high, uh, at like full power level. And ideally when it comes to money, a store of value isn't leaky at all, right? It doesn't lose um, monetary energy over time such that it can be acquired, stored safely, and then will, will retain its purchasing power over time. And fiat money, like national currencies don't do that because as you create more money, you're, you're basically, that's the energy leak, like in the battery pack, right? Every time they print a new dollar or create a new dollar, it takes away some of the store of value that my, that my money has, um, is supposed to, is supposed to retain. And the cool thing about Bitcoin is that it is, um, because it's scarce, it is a perfect store of value. And I think that's really why people are using it right now. Like I, I always tell people Bitcoin is savings technology right now, where if you want to save your money and know that it's somewhere that's not going to um, be leak, be leaky, um, then it's a very powerful use of that. And it's just, like I said, store of value, something that retains its purchasing power over time. Um, so yeah, that's store of value. Function number two, medium of exchange. So that would be an item that's widely acceptable in exchange for goods or services. And the most commonly used medium of exchange is a currency. Um, and so first it's a store of value, then it becomes a medium of exchange. And you're seeing places like El Salvador where they've essentially fast-tracked, um, and almost skipped over store of value because of the, um, because of the urgency to have something that they can use that both acts as a store of value and that they can also transact with. And so, um, the cool thing is that as a medium of exchange with something like lightning, Bitcoin is actually a better medium of exchange already, even in its preliminary stages, than um, than fiat money, right? Like if I if I am using uh, Canadian dollars as a medium of exchange, when I go buy an apple, uh, not an apple, maybe like a meal, and I pay with my Visa card, there is a transaction cost. Uh, there's a company making money in order for me to use my Canadian dollars as a medium of exchange. I have to pay Visa or in that case, I don't pay, but the merchant will pay, receiving the payment, will pay Visa 3% to be able to facilitate that payment. And this whole notion that right now medium of exchange, uh, for, for national currencies to be medium of exchange, they require a third party intermediary, which is uh, has counterparty risk and also has a cost associated with it. Bitcoin is sort of eliminating that. And it is the ultimate medium of exchange because it's peer to peer. It doesn't require a third party to go through. And I think that's very, very powerful because we, we've kind of stopped paying people, right? Like if I want to pay you, probably the, the only way I can do it is to pay PayPal and then PayPal pays you. And for doing, for facilitating that, they take a slice. And the whole notion that like PayPal is not actually giving us a whole lot of value now that a system exists that we don't require PayPal. Until then, PayPal served a purpose because it was the only way for me to transact and send you value. Um, yeah. Any thoughts about medium of exchange? Yeah, I think um, just a couple of points. Um, I think that that transition from store of value to medium of exchange, obviously we're seeing it in today's world with Bitcoin. Um, I also think it's like a very um, individualized uh, um, process. Uh, you know, when you think about it, it can be, you know, individual. Um, it can also be like at a collective scale, but um, you know, it's really exciting to see places like El Salvador, who, um, you know, the citizens of that country um, have a have a very real use case to, um, you know, more people have Bitcoin wallets than bank accounts now in, in El Salvador. And that happened very quickly. And so, um, 
you know, I, I think that uh, being around and seeing that process change, you know, I, I know that we're in this store of value phase, but um, it's, it's really fascinating when you can see uh, real world things uh, and then a, a Bitcoin value being placed on it. It's kind of exciting. Um, but like you said, it, it does take some time because we're in the in the stage that we are now, we're still in a very um, upward volatile um, trajectory. Uh, and I would think that, you know, any, you know, anything like that um, would be hard for people to, to start utilizing as a medium exchange. Yeah. And people rag on Bitcoin all the time saying that it's like, it's a great store of value, but it's not a good medium of exchange. It's like, well, have you heard of lightning? Because that is <laughs> <laughs> kind of a, you know, an early, in the early days, you know, a lot of these altcoins really were based on the premise that Bitcoin is not fast enough. It's not a good way. I can't pay for coffee with my Bitcoin. It's like, well, I think you're thinking very small, right? Like Bitcoin is something is, is sound money that you can use to store a billion dollars of value. Maybe it's not something right now that really, it doesn't really matter that you can't buy your coffee with Bitcoin. I, I don't think so. And then all you have to do is have a bit of patience and see, okay, well, now you can literally go buy a burger from McDonald's using Lightning, using Bitcoin. Uh, you can buy a Starbucks coffee. You can do this all in El Salvador. And it's literally not that hard for McDonald's to just implement that, like plug that in into all their locations worldwide, which is pretty cool. And so, you know, it's nice to see El Salvador being a case study for this because it's really proofing and showing and refining these technologies to make them easier to use. Uh, to make them simpler, to have the user interface be kind of dialed in so that it's like, that's sort of the beta testing area uh, for the rest of the world. And the cool thing is it's actually working really well. And so I think as a medium of exchange, eventually it becomes a medium of exchange when enough people hold Bitcoin and are willing to use it. Uh, and I think the, the big obstacle to using it as a medium of exchange, especially for me, is like if I get paid in fiat and I have to transfer that fiat into Bitcoin, then if I spend my Bitcoin, I got to re-up uh, by by trading more of my fiat away. When I get paid in Bitcoin, I'm going to be just fine using my Bitcoin as a medium of exchange because I no longer have to have the the task of constantly buying more Bitcoin with my fiat to um, to top up the amount that I've got. So I think it's already becoming a medium of exchange. It's already a really good medium of exchange with Lightning. Um, but most people, the use case for most people, especially in the Western world, is that of store value. And then the third function of money. So we have store of value. We have medium of exchange. The third function of money is as a unit of account. And I don't want to go too deep into this, but essentially, you know, if I said, Eddie, what's your, what's your car worth? You would probably say my car is worth X amount of us dollars. And so you're using us dollars as a way to uh, articulate the value of something. And so unit of account really is like, how do you view the world? Do you view the world and how expensive or cheap things are in us dollars or, or, you know, and there's a big debate, um, and, and literally we could do an entire episode on this, maybe we should, about mm -hmm. is Bitcoin uh, a good unit of account, right? Because it's so, like you said, and I liked how you said volatile, but you said upward volatile, uh, volatility. Because <laughs> it was like, does volatility <laughs> really matter? Is it a bad thing if it's in the upward direction? I don't think so. Um, and, you know, I think because dollars are being diluted so quickly and losing their value so quickly, um, a unit of account should be fairly stable, right? But when the fiat world is totally unstable and decreasing in value, it, it makes it look like Bitcoin is, is volatile, 
when really it's just a fiat world that's volatile. Therefore, it's pricing Bitcoin in ways that's changing rapidly, not because Bitcoin's changing, because the fiat world is, <laughs> is losing its value over time. So unit of account is sort of how do you, what, what form of money do you view the world in when you're valuing things? Um, a fourth function that I'd like to add, typically those are the, the only three functions of money. Like those are the three functions that money serves. Um, but I heard Andreas Antonopoulos talk about in one of his talks, talk about money having a fourth function, which was system of control. And I think this was a really powerful insight for me because this is not supposed to be a fundamental function of money, but as money currently exists, it does serve that function. Um, you know, it's a way money serves the function of being a way that governments can control the people that are within their countries, uh, of, you know, it, it's a way to control people essentially as that's being used right now. And the cool thing is that Bitcoin eliminates that fourth function, which should never have been added in the first place, but somehow weaseled its way in there. Um, so yeah, those are the three plus one functions of money. Anything, uh, to add there before we move on to properties of money? Um, yeah, there was one thing in my head that I guess I just wanted to kind of riff on real quick. And that was just, um, I forgot who it was. If I remember, I'll make sure to give them a shout out. But I remember actually um, somebody, you know, we were talking about the U.S. dollar. I was listening to a podcast about the U.S. dollar um, being inflated. And I think everybody in the world, you know, can have a good experience with, you know, um, at least hearing one news article about money being printed um, in the last year and a half. But I thought it was a really interesting idea to show the actual value that the US dollar, for example, was losing by just comparing it to Bitcoin. And then I was like, that's really funny, actually. You see Bitcoin skyrocketing in price. One of the reasons that it could be going up in price is just because the dollar is losing value so abruptly. And, you know, just from my own personal experiences is when you see things like commodities, you know, I'm, I'm building a climbing wall in my backyard and I spend a ton of money on the wood. It's probably like two times as much as it was last year. And here in California, you know, um, things like bacon or double the price. And, um, you know, my, my face care, uh, uh, company emailed me a few days ago saying first time in 16 years, they're raising the price on, on some of their products. So it's something that, you know, we're seeing. And, and, uh, I think that, um, you know, the last point, um, that you'd mentioned is like, you know, money being a unit of account. Um, the most important part is that it's, it's not manipulated. Um, if we're, if we're using it to account for things in life, like my car or a medical procedure, um, you know, something that could be way more um, important in life than it should be with a, um, money that is a good solid unit of account. And, uh, you know, Bitcoin has very good properties to um, be a good unit of account in the future. Yeah. And even just like the messiness of all the different currencies in the world, right? Like when you're looking at how expensive something is, if it's in Europe and it's denominated in euros, it's really hard to make that calculation of like, because every time we purchase something, we're essentially making a decision, right? We're making a choice of, is this worth the amount of time and energy I would need to provide in order to earn the amount that that thing costs. 
And when that number, when that unit of account is constantly being manipulated, it impedes on the individual ability to make a wise choice in terms of whether something is or isn't worth the energy we would need to put in in order to earn that. And when that's constantly being manipulated, it messes up a lot of things. It messes up our ability to coordinate. It messes up our ability to make good decisions based on personal planning. And yeah, I mean, right now, SATs are in a great unit of account because Bitcoin is like, literally, we're witnessing this thing being monetized in real time. And so it's like violently changing constantly. But at the end of the day, the cost in terms of energy to make one Bitcoin isn't actually changing that much. What is changing is the unit that we're comparing Bitcoin to, right? If we're comparing SATs to US dollars, the US dollars are a lot, they're more stable over time um, at, at like a cursory look. But when you actually look at it long-term, they're extremely volatile in that they lose massive amounts of value over time, right? Like, um, you know, sometimes I look at in Canada, we have these things called Timbits, where literally the center of the donut gets sold as a little ball. It's like a miniature <laughs> ball donut. That's like a ball it's sold by Tim Hortons. Um, and the cost of a Timbit, I remember a Timbit used to cost like five cents. And this was something that I could remember. Therefore, it can't have been that long ago. And a Timbit today costs 29 cents. So, you know, it went up 6x the price. And that was like my Timbit factor for noting like, are things increasing in price overall? Well, shit, a Timbit went up sixfold. And I don't think the ingredients to make a Timbit went up sixfold. I think just prices in general, like Canadian dollars became six times less worth, uh, worth six times less in terms of purchasing power. So yeah, it's very interesting. Everything's getting kind of thrown off. And the more you throw off, the more you manipulate the unit of account, um, the, the harder it is for us to coordinate as a society. And if we can't coordinate, then it's really hard to put good to coordinate, to have goods put on the shelf of the supermarket. It's hard to coordinate energy to be delivered to people to be able to use in their houses. So I think we're seeing some of that right now. Um, yeah, let's no, go. I, I guess one, one last thing to add is that, um, you know, because I think about that a lot. It's like, you know, a house 50 years ago used to be this much and now it's worth this much. And a lot of people you like, I, even myself just use the, um, Oh, well it's worth more now. And so that's probably a good thing because it's worth more now. Um, but, uh, when you you own a house, it's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think that that is just was a faulty, um, reasoning that I had because, um, you know, it's, it's really like a fundamental, um, you know, tidbits, uh, you know, those are, those are really awesome things and they shouldn't be inflating in price, you know? So, yeah, um, I mean, it's, that's the (laughs) sneaky part of, uh, money creation, right? Like my parents both own houses and they're like, this is great. My house went up 30%. I'm like, well, try this, try this out for size. What if your house didn't go up 30%, but the unit you're denominating your house in went down by 20%. Um, and you know, that like, it makes it so that it's almost like sugar-coated, right? Like people think they're getting richer because their assets are getting more valuable when in reality, everything that they need to purchase for the rest of their life just got more expensive. So it doesn't matter that your house became worth a little bit more. It's only it, the value, only the perceived value only went up because your unit of account is depreciating, which means everything's getting more expensive, even though your house is making money. And the reality is, okay, your house is making money. Everything's more expensive. Are you getting a 20% raise? Because if you're not, then you're falling behind and you're needing to work harder for the same amount just to kind of like stay at the same level. Um, Let's go to properties of money. And this is, so we covered principles. We covered functions of money. 
And let's cover properties of money. Cause this is when we say good money or bad money, it's really based on the properties of money. And these are individual elements that we can objectively measure to determine whether something is good money, serves the role of money well, or is shitty money uh, in that it doesn't serve as very good money because its properties aren't optimized for the purpose of money. And I want to start with the most important one being such that if this one isn't present, then it's not a good form of money. And that's scarcity. And so scarcity as a property of money is, you know, without scarcity, you cannot have good money. And the true innovation with Bitcoin is actually digital finite scarcity. Uh, and we won't go too deep into that. But what I think is important to mention is making a distinction between relative scarcity and absolute scarcity, because absolute scarcity is the innovation with Bitcoin. So before Bitcoin, everything was relatively scarce. If it was scarce, it was relatively scarce, meaning that, for example, gold is scarce relative to something like silver or copper, right? It is harder to acquire, harder to find, harder to create gold. So it's relatively scarce. And, but it's not absolutely scarce because gold increases in the supply of gold increases by about 1.6, I think to 2% per year. And if the price of gold goes up that number, that supply increase goes up even more because now it's people can mine gold or, um, you know, more profitably than previously. And, you know, the reality is that Bitcoin in its final in its final state increases by 0% per year. And that is absolute scarcity. So in order to be effective as money, something has to store value in order to store value, it must be scarce. And this is a fundamental and essential element to money and, um, something that fiat doesn't have, right? If we can just conjure up and create more money out of nowhere and we do it every year, then that thing that we're holding as money is no longer scarce uh, and therefore is not serving as very good money. Uh, what are your thoughts on scarcity? Yeah, um, I think that it is, uh, you know, your point on um, relative and uh, definite scarcity um, is a really good point um, in that um, Bitcoin, I'm beginning to realize that digital scarcity um, can only be, I'm realizing that it can only be discovered or invented once. Um, and uh, the, the importance of scarcity is, is very important. I mean, in, in being able to um, transact and, and hold value in something, you want it so somebody can't uh, go out, you know, let's say that you and I were trading uh, seashells and I picked up all the shells on the beach and I'm the richest guy on the island. Um, but uh, then, you know, somebody else uh, realizes that I'm trading seashells and then they bring a whole boatload from another island. Um, then, you know, my, my, my value, is, it's, it's, you know, completely uh, changed. And so scarcity is important uh, for a lot of reasons. And I think that it's a good baseline um, uh, um, <clears throat> foundation of, of a good money. Uh, you know, I think that's a great point. And it kind of just brings to my next, uh, you know, I guess to one of the next um, properties of money. And that's just the ability to be durable, durability. Sure. Um, and I guess that kind of relates to a uh, store of value and, and for, for money to be durable, it needs to resist rot 
or corrosion or deterioration of value. So, um, you know, just a few examples of, of durability. I mean, I could be, you know, in, in the days of, of bartering and trade, you know, I could be an apple farmer, but saving all my apples and trying to trade, you know, and a uh, thousand apples for a cow is not going to really make sense that those apples aren't going to be durable over time. Um, and uh, just kind of the same thing that we're witnessing with, with a lot of fiat currencies nowadays is that, um, unfortunately, you know, the U.S. dollar is not um, resistant to, um, to, to change and uh, deteriorating value. And so we're kind, of, uh, we're kind of seeing that. But durability is very important for uh, a sound money. Yeah. And I think the U S dollar, that would be more of a scarcity element than a dirt, like durability would more be like the physical money, right? Like is your $1 bill durable? Well, it has a pretty big life cycle. It's pretty durable. Is your, uh, you know, 25 cent coin is pretty durable. And I like what you said about apples not being durable because, um, they rot. Therefore it, it doesn't meet the criteria of money of being durable over time, right? Like corn is not a good, um, is, is not a good money because, it rots over time. It disappears. So it's not a good form of money because it's not durable. I think with Bitcoin, durability becomes a factor um, based on people's ability to safely self-custody. So Bitcoin, the durability of Bitcoin, because it's a digital element, right? There's no physical part. So how does durability come into this? And I think durability comes from the fact that in the early days, it was really easy for people to lose their Bitcoin, right? If, you're, if, you're, um, if your hard drive went to shit and you lost your Bitcoin, then in that case, I think that's the that's the the way that durability plays into Bitcoin, but really just over time, it has to be able to last, right? A gold coin is very durable. And in a hundred years, a gold coin will still be in existence. It won't have physically deteriorated. So we have scarcity, which is the, like the keystone property of money. We have durability. Uh, I think another really important one is transferability as a property of money. How easy is it for me to transfer a unit of something um, from myself to someone else? And you know, in a global world, transferability is really important, right? Gold is a terrible, gold has terrible um, transferability, right? If you live in Australia, I live in Canada, for me to transfer you uh, a bar of gold is extremely expensive to ship it, to secure it, to make sure no one steals it. Um, Bitcoin has amazing transferability, right? Like it's literally teleportable across a communication channel. Uh, It's literally as easy as sending a Twitter message. Um, And so I think in terms of transferability, um, Bitcoin has that on lock and, you know, I think transferability also needs to include the cost of transferring, right? Like, um, us dollars have great transferability. They can be teleported over communication channel, but there's friction there in that there's a cost to transfer and there is a cost to transfer Bitcoin on the main chain, but with lightning, there's basically no cost it's instant and it's a bearer asset. So I'm not sending you a credit for a certain amount. I'm sending you the physical or not physical, but I'm sending you the actual um, unit, the actual bearer instrument. Um, So we've got scarcity, transferability, durability. What's next on your list? So I have got divisibility. Uh, as a, another crushes that as another character yeah and uh, and just to kind of play off of of what you just said i mean a, a divisibility is essentially the ease in subdividing or grouping the, the monetary units together so just an example of bitcoin there is a hundred million bitcoin a uh, hundred million sats in every bitcoin and so 
you can divide up a dollar into a hundred, a uh, hundred pennies, um, but you can also divide up a Bitcoin into a hundred million Satoshis. And so I think that that is uh, very divis- highly divisible. Yes. Um, and uh, I don't know if you want to go too much further, you know, into the divisibility of that, but I think that kind of hits it on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty simple one. You got to be able to divide and aggregate um, this form of money in order for it to, to satisfy the property of divisibility, right? Like uh, a Mona Lisa doesn't have very good divisibility because if you chop it into a hundred pieces, um, it, it no longer has the value of a Mona Lisa, right? Um, so you got to be able to have a good form of money. You can buy um, a one cent um, trinket with, and you can also buy uh, the Dallas Cowboys with. And you can do that with dollars, but you can also do that with Bitcoin in that it's the most divisible form of money, I think, because it's digital and we can go to 100 million units, like that many decibel places, very, very powerful. So uh, scarcity, transferability, durability, divisibility. Uh, Another one is portability. So in order for money, you know, like a cow is not a good form of money because you can't just bring a cow with you wherever you go. You can't bring it overseas. You can't, you can't. it's not portable, right? A string of numbers and letters, which is essentially the um, unit that you use to access your Bitcoin can be, is very portable, right? It's portable on a piece of paper, on a computer chip, like a hardware wallet, or it's literally portable in your friggin' brain. That's the trippiest part, right? So I think in terms of portability, um, you know, with a bank card or a credit card, uh, fiat currency becomes quite portable, but uh, you can't, bring along uh, Canadian dollars in your brain uh, for the most part. So I think that's, uh, that's really uh, a really cool feature that, that Bitcoin crushes. And, you know, gold sucks in terms of portability, right? If you have $100 million in gold, it's really, it's not very portable, right? It's super heavy. It's super bulky. It's super hard to secure. Um, yeah. So portability is another uh, property of money. Yeah, just to play off of uh, off of gold because it's fun to <clears throat> it's it's uh, for me I I like to play um, the properties of gold to Bitcoin. It's a good way to um, start to understand those different properties, and um, yeah, it's really hard to 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 bring your whole bank vault of gold uh, to to wherever you're moving, and uh, when you're trading with gold, it's also another another quality of money that um, I think is really important. Um, is verifiability and verifiability is essentially making sure that that the money that you have is not counterfeit Um, and with you know for for bitcoin it's it's very easy for you to verify that uh, what you received is is real bitcoin um, because that is the only thing the protocol allows Um, and you can do that uh, very cheaply and, and by yourself. Um, now to like compare that to gold, um, if you know, Nick was to pay me in gold, uh, then I would uh, take that to a place where I could test the gold and make sure, you know, test its, its pureness. And I would well, you don't also trust do- me. You don't trust me, Eddie? <laughs> <laughs> say that i trust you no that uh you know you don't trust you've anyone to be able to, never you, you've got to verify yeah you've got to verify and that's the great thing that bitcoin can do and and uh so i think one one thing that i will add is that you know i've listened to a couple different talks on on different properties of money and i've heard you know five properties of money i've heard seven properties or functions of money but you know i think nick and i are just gonna like you know pinging back 
and forth on each other on these different ideas um, and, and properties. Do you have any others that, uh, that you've got yeah. in your pocket? I got a few others and they, okay. they don't need to be elaborated on too much. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up was fungibility. That's a big property. So like one Bitcoin being worth the same amount as another Bitcoin. Uh, and if you cut them in half, each half is worth as much as each other. And um, that might tie into the one that you uh, that you just mentioned, verifiability. You know, like fungibility means one Bitcoin will always have an equal value to uh, another Bitcoin or one sat will always equal one sat. So I think fungibility is another one of those classical properties of money. And so scarcity, transferability, durability, divisibility, portability, those are like the, the core ones that you're going to see most of the time when people talk about properties of money. Um, but I got four other ones that I think, um, like I said, they don't require much time to elaborate on, but I think have become important uh, in terms of properties of money. Um, one of those is securability. So how easy or hard is it to keep that money secure, right? If it's, uh, you know, Bitcoin is simple and easy to secure if you understand best practices of self-custody, which we'll, you know, we'll do a whole episode in School of Coin about self-custody and wallets. Um, so securability, it's really hard to secure gold. It's really hard to secure uh, a lot of, uh, you know, it's not that hard to secure Canadian dollars, but if you realize that the government, like banks really are the ones that own your money if you have it in a bank account. So technically you're not really securing your money if it's in a bank account, the bank is securing it for you and you're trusting that they're not gonna steal it from you, which inevitably people always try and steal your shit if you give it to them to hold on to. Uh, so securability, confiscability, how easily is, is, and that's kind of tied in securability, how easily, how easily is it confiscated or taken from you? Uh, and the cool thing about encryption is that literally Bitcoin's impossible to confiscate if you do best practices correctly. Um, so that's another one. Taxability. So how easily is your money taxed? Um, you know, property is really easy to tax. Fiat is easy to tax. Bitcoin is really hard to tax. I would argue it can't be taxed if you use best practices. And the last one is censorability. So the ability, how resistant is your money um, to censorship? And fiat is highly censorable. Uh, Bitcoin can't be censored. Nobody can prevent you from sending or receiving a payment on Bitcoin. Um, you know, when it comes to fiat, banks can prevent you from accessing your funds. You know, I've had a couple instances where our PayPal account at TFC, they basically said, you need to review these terms and conditions and put in this information. And we're not going to let you access your money until you do that. And so they essentially stopped me, prevented me from accessing my own money until I did something they wanted me to do. And so the fact that they can prevent you from making a payment, you know, they could prevent me from making a payment to someone that they don't deem uh, likable or that um, the government that oversees PayPal doesn't like, like maybe they stopped me from making a payment to WikiLeaks and that's a form of censorship. And so I think Bitcoin crushes censorability because no one can censor you. If you can put together a string of numbers and letters, you're allowed to make a transaction on with your Bitcoin. No one can stop you from doing that. So just to kind of summarize, scarcity, transferability, durability, fungibility, portability, securability, confiscability, which is kind of in with securability, taxability and censorability. That's a lot of abilities. Um, <laughs> but if you understand, here's where the, it kind of ties it all together. If you understand the properties of money and you understand that these are, these are elements that are required in order, uh, for a form of money to, to meet 
the criteria for being good money. What that allows you to do is then put any form of money through that criteria and allows you to objectively determine whether this is a good money or a shitty money. And I think that's very important because, you know, the whole ethos of Bitcoin is don't trust verify. You should have the basic tools to be able to assess uh, whether something is good or bad money for yourself without having to rely on what someone else is telling you, because they might not be telling you the truth, maybe not on purpose. Maybe they literally just don't know enough to know the truth. And so being able to determine truth, it's kind of like what we do with shoes. Like people always, you know, we tell people that footwear is the primary determinant for your foot health. Instead of telling people exactly what shoes to buy, we tell them what to look for in shoes so that they can make their own judgment. And this is sort of the same thing, but with money. Um, so those are the properties of money. You might have to listen to that a few times. You might have to do more research. In fact, I would encourage you to do more research. But once you know the properties of money, you become able to determine whether something is good money or bad money and to make a wiser choice for how you store your energy. Um, anything to add there before we move on? I want to talk about hard versus soft money and just kind of give that a bit of context. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that, um, you know, there, there are a lot of terms as far as, uh, you know, the functions and properties of money. Um, but like Nick said, don't let it be um, overwhelming at all. A lot of these terms are, are interrelated. And uh, you listen to it once or twice and, and, and check out some other, um, you know, some other uh, sources of, of uh, knowledge and, and you should be able to wrap your head around it quite well. I think that, um, yeah, to, to just transition into talking about hard and soft money, I think that, um, you know, uh, it's, it's really important to think about the, the sovereignty of, of the money. And, uh, I think that was one thing that I had written down, written down about the properties of money is like, if it's, uh, you know, is, is if it's sovereign or not. And how do you define uh, sovereignty in that context, like how is, what are you describing there? Yeah. Um, like the source of its value, um, what I had noted down is like, for instance, with Bitcoin, um, the source of its value has been naturally created by a consensus of the community, of the Bitcoin community. Um, whereas like a fiat money um, is, is, is made sovereign by a gov like a decree, it's, it's made by law. And so I think that that can be like a good transition into talking about like um, hard and soft money, but just also another another basic property of money is that, um, you know, Bitcoin is something that the world and that the community has placed value on. And, and that's something that has been created out of society and not um, not just made by a law or by a group of people. Yeah, I think the coolest thing about Bitcoin is that you actually have to choose it. Right. No one's I mean this held true until El Salvador. And I, I don't want to dive into the nuance of that, but you have to choose Bitcoin. Um, it's not mandated by law. Nobody forces you to use it. Um, but when you're born in the United States, you're forced to use US dollars. Like you're not allowed to use something else as your day-to-day -day transaction because no one else will accept it. And you're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to expect that it would be accepted as legal tender because there's only one currency. And so the fact that you have to choose Bitcoin and the fact that we now actually have that choice available um, you know, it might not have been that important to understand the principles of money, the functions of money, or even the properties of money, because there was never a choice, right? Like maybe you can, if you live in the United States, you can buy euros, 
but you're not gonna be able to use euros. And so there's not really any choice that would warrant you understanding properties of money to make a better choice. Now we do have choice. And so the importance of understanding money is now higher because now we have a way to actually use that knowledge, uh, which I think is cool. And so, you know, hard and soft money are terms that get thrown around. Um, hard money is directly backed by some sort of valuable commodity. And we used to have hard money, right? Like before, I think 1971, when it, when the US dollar untethered from gold, uh, it was backed by gold. Uh, Bitcoin is a hard money because it's backed by energy, which I think is this universal uh, unit that we can all like energy. I think it was Nikola Tesla talked about how eventually we need some sort of money backed by energy. And so it's kind of funny because Bitcoin is that. Um, so hard money is a reliable store of value because it's backed by some sort of commodity and maintains stable value relative to goods and services and a strong exchange rate relative to softer monies. And soft money is money that's not backed by any tangible commodity. Um, and so like Canadian dollar is backed by the Canadian government and bonds that they issue, but it's not actually backed by anything of true value, <laughs> right? Yeah. The full faith and credit. That's like the, the sentence they love to use. So, um, yeah. And I mean, hard money involves less risk than soft money, because if it's backed by something tangible, that is a value, um, it allows you, it, you know, eventually it carries a stronger exchange rate than softer monies as people realize what's soft and, and what's hard money. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really have anything to, to add on that, but you know, it's, uh, it's a pretty easy decision to, uh, you know, once you can differentiate between the two to, to, um, know where you want to put your, your hard earned money and, and, and where you want to store it. Um, a place that is not debased and, and that can, uh, hold its value across time. And that would be a hard money. Yep. So. And Bitcoin is the hardest money we've ever created. That's the, it's so cool. Yeah. Um, and it's like, you know, the soft monies have become ever softer over time because of how, um, because of how broken the, the foundation is of that money. You know, Bitcoin has this granite foundation. It's built on a protocol that is very hard to change. And that contributes to the hardness of this money in, coupled with the fact that it's based on energy, right? You have to expend energy. Back to that first thing, the value of any good trends towards this marginal cost of production. Soft money has a zero cost of production. Hard money has a high cost of production because it's uh, coupled with some sort of commodity that's hard to produce, right? Whether that's gold or whether that's energy. Um, I had a point to say like, you know, why is sound money important? Hard money uh, is sort of like a synonym in my, in my opinion for sound money. Um, sound money made with um, sort of like a good understanding and a good alignment of the properties of money and the functions of money. And kind of like you said with the initial, in the principles, sound money is essential for a healthy, functional, sustainable society. And it's fundamental for cooperation. And, you know, have a prime example of a place like Venezuela, where they're very rich in resources, right? They have tons of oil. But when the money breaks, the coordination mechanism breaks. And so they might have tons of oil, but the coordination required to extract the oil, to refine the oil, to transport the oil, and to deliver it, that breaks down if you don't have sound money. And so it really doesn't matter what uh, a society has in terms of its natural resources. If you can't facilitate the coordination by having sound money, those resources essentially become useless. 
and uh, worthless. And so when money breaks down, coordination is prevented. And I think we're seeing that right now. And I think Bitcoin gives hope to the fact that sound money can restore our ability to cooperate, not just nationally, but globally, right? Like it's going to require coordination for us to solve a lot of these problems, like the climate problem, the health problem. This is going to require coordination. And Bitcoin is now the ultimate tool for coordination so that humanity can solve these problems, which I think is super badass. So that's why sound money really needs to be, it's the base layer of society. And if that's shaky, then everything built on top of it is shaky. So why don't we just spend a lot of time making sure we have a, a rock solid foundation and everything else is easier to build and is more sustainable because it's built on something that isn't just like sand, basically. Um, I think, and so the, we got, I got one more point and then basically I just wanted to do a summary to kind of at a high level reiterate kind of what we talked about. But the last point I had to talk about was this whole notion of replacing monetary policy with a monetary protocol. And, you know, fiat is a centralized money um, that implements a monetary policy where a select few people can decide on a whim to create as much money as they want over time. And actually over time, they're forced to, to create more and more money to protect a fragile system that eventually falls apart. Like the end destination for fiat is zero is catastrophe. And so like, why waste more time trying to, per, trying to put band-aids on something that's going to end? Um, and so that's monetary policy. Monetary protocol, Bitcoin is decentralized money, which uses a monetary protocol to govern how new coins are created. And the reason you join this protocol is because you agree that with, you agree with the fact that how we're voting that money should be created, that Bitcoin should be created is fair. And it's based on math and a set of immutable rules that can't be broken and are super hard to change. So they can be changed, but it's very hard and it has to be done by consensus. Whereas, so that's protocol, rules without rulers. Policy is rulers govern what happens to everyone else. And if they're not acting in the best interests of the whole, or if they're not even able to deal with the complexity and act accordingly for the best interests of the whole, then they break the thing. So I think that it's, I think this notion where I really get inspired with this is this whole notion that if we're replacing policy with the protocol, what other opportunities do we have to replace policy with a protocol? Like, could we replace the way that we govern our countries? Um, can we replace politics with a protocol? Can we vote in a decentralized way on what rules we think are important for our societies instead of having people that we elect and hope that they do what they actually said they do, which they almost never do? Um, can we just vote on rules? And, you know, I, th I just think it's a really powerful metaphor for how the future society can be going to more uh, decentralized rules based protocols of how we govern societies instead of just risking it by giving the power to a select few who often act in their best interest at the cost of everyone else. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it was really fun to think about like the difference between monetary policy and monetary protocol. And I think Nick, you broke it down pretty well, like protocol, like, um, you know, uh, rules without rulers and uh, policy is like, to me, I was, I was looking up policy and um, the best definition that I found is that policy helps in decision-making <clears throat> And in, in fact, it assists in decision-making. And so in my head, I was like, okay, well, if we have a protocol, then, then no, no decisions need to be made. 
we've already made um, the decisions. We've made the decisions and we've agreed on like the end point. And so I think that that's like a super like powerful thing. Like what, like how you're like um, imagining like protocol to be, um, you know, applied to, to not just, uh, you know, mo- to a monetary basis, but, you know, potentially to a wider scale, you know, to a um, governmental basis. It's, it's really, um, you know, it just, it, it makes me think about uh, the inherent um, problem with, you know, having a small few um, make decisions for everybody else or having, you know, the whole family, you know, let's, let's have a family meeting or, you know, we can have a private adult conversation and, and exclude a few people. And I would much rather be in the family meeting where my voice gets heard and I can agree, like you said, agree to participate, choose to participate in that system if it aligns with my values. And so, yeah, I think, um, replacing monetary policy with monetary protocol um could have like just you know the deepest um ripples you know through through society and um i think it's a great way to to think about things because like you said it we we just didn't have the option and maybe that's why um i didn't have the opportunity to think about it but one of the things that i really thought was important is now that we do have this option now that bitcoin is something that's real. Um, and, uh, you know, it seems to me like it's somewhat worth learning about. Um, you know, it's, it's important because that's, that's the way that we should be living our lives. If, if there is a, a better way to take care of our health or take care of our money, um, then and we should be thinking about it and not avoiding it. Yeah. And I think sound money permits planning, right? Like you can, you can make wiser choices of whether something is worth X amount of units of value or not. If you know that there's certainty with those amount, those units of value over time. Right. Um, And I think, you know, one of the things I like most about protocol based governance instead of policy based governance is the accountability is built into the protocol because of transparency. And this whole notion that policy is very opaque, right? A select few make decisions behind closed doors most of those decisions don't even get divulged with full honesty and transparency, right? Um, And that's part of why things get so messed up and there's no accountability, right? People can mess things up without worrying that they're going to be held accountable. And I think the whole notion of a protocol that's, that's fully transparent and that we can all see in plain sight and that we can all be arbiters to make sure that we're aligning with that protocol, right? If someone like in Bitcoin, if you do a transaction that doesn't abide by the protocol, your transaction gets declined. You're not allowed to do that transaction because you didn't listen to the basic rules that this protocol is based on. And when it comes to societal governance, you know, we decide on a set of rules and those rules need to be understandable by everyone. This is another thing too, because I think with politics, a lot of bullshit gets hidden in inside of jargon that only lawyers or accountants or politicians can really decipher, right? Like the whole infrastructure bill being like fucking 5,000 pages, like who's going to read that? Who can understand it? And why does it need to be that big? Like, why can't we just, you know, I have rules in my life. Like I have a tangible parallel to this because in my life I make rules and those rules are rules that I hold myself accountable to. And they actually eliminate a lot of decisions that I would otherwise have to make. Right. I make a rule that by nine o'clock, I don't have my phone. I'm away. 
make a choice. Should I watch Netflix tonight? Should I do this tonight? It's like, I've already made the rule. So I've eliminated a ton of choices and I've made my life simpler um, by just deciding what matters and making a, a kind of a quote unquote, slightly flexible rule over time for myself. And if we made rules in society that were transparent, that we all agreed with, um, then it eliminates a lot of decisions we need. And if they're high level rules, it eliminates a lot of decisions we need to make personally. And it also puts us all in a position to hold each other accountable to those rules instead of having to rely on um, someone making decisions and then having, having no real accountability as to whether those decisions were good or not, or whether they're actually being listened to and implemented or not. Um, yeah, I think that was a good, uh, for, you know, like over time, I think the cool thing about these episodes with school of coin is that if we develop a better understanding, cause you and I are still learning and getting better at talking about these topics. And as we have more conversations and help others learn about this by sharing our understanding, we're going to get better at explaining it. So maybe in future we re-record this episode as our understanding is better, but I'm keen to listen to it and see how much cohesiveness or flow there was to it. But I'd like to finish with a bit of a summary to kind of close things out and, I want to start with the fact that fiat is soft money created out of thin air by a select few who benefit disproportionately from the money being created, which ends up stealing value from everyone else holding that money. And Bitcoin is hard money backed by energy. The primary innovation is absolute digital scarcity. It's the most scarce money on earth. It's durable. It's fungible. It's divisible. It's portable. It's easily secured. It's hard to confiscate. It's difficult to tax and it's uncensorable. So based on the properties of money, which we can all objectively agree on, are valid, uh, it's the best form of money humans have ever created. And that's why it's of interest to you, Eddie, and to me, and to many millions of people who are starting to see the value of Bitcoin. And I think the best way to understand Bitcoin is to understand money. Once you understand money, you become, you reclaim your power of being able to determine whether something is good money or bad money, and you're able to make a wiser decision about where you store your energy. And to be able to put it in a tool that preserves and grows your purchasing power over time, instead of allowing it to disappear because people are doing things that you don't even know they're doing. And I think uh, the two last points that I had there for the summary is that if money monopolizes and Bitcoin's the world best, world's best money, as people learn about it and learn about money and become more informed, more financially literate, they'll transfer more and more of their wealth into Bitcoin to protect their purchasing power. And therefore, Bitcoin will continue to consume value uh, that's currently being stored in inferior forms of money, like um, gold, like bonds, like equities, and even like real estate. Um, and I think the big one is that finite scarcity, absolute scarcity, is Bitcoin's true innovation. It can only be discovered once. It was discovered by Bitcoin. It can't be copied. No other coin can copy it, um, despite what they may say. And I think that's a really important point. So... Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for taking an interest to learn about money. I think that's the biggest thing. Like that's very, very powerful. You're taking back a shitload of responsibility for your life by taking back ownership of understanding money and a world with people who are financially intelligent is a world where promoting a greedy, sketchy money is way harder. And I think that's really powerful. And so we hope today's conversation was helpful for you. And if it was, we encourage you to send this episode to a friend or family member that can benefit by increasing their understanding of money. Uh, remember that the Bitcoin Stoa is a community-funded platform. So if you're getting value from the content, you can support the project by sending some sats when and if you acquire them uh, to the QR code at thebitcoinstoa.com. That is all for today. Eddie, do you have any final words before we sign off? 
Yeah, Nick, um, today's episode was really awesome. And I just wanted to say I'm really grateful to be able to embark on this journey, learning about money with you. And uh, just want to shout out to any, any of our listeners or anybody out there who is embarking on um, their, their own journey to, to really understand money and, and to take back uh, control of their lives. Um, you know, it's, it's a really fun and exciting process and I wish you all the best. And, uh, you know, this episode was a lot of fun. Thank you, Nick. And, uh, thank you everybody. Yeah. Thanks Eddie for being here to everyone listening. Take care of yourselves. Thanks again for tuning into this conversation of the Bitcoin store and we will catch you, um, next time. Ciao.